the thing I think is important to remember is that both China and the United States are powerful countries that can exact high price or high risk for Japan. So one host nation support negotiation is not going to break the alliance. You know, it's not that straightforward, but it can shake confidence that the alliance is really for mutual benefit. This is Asia Insight, Asia policy in a pod. From the National Bureau of Asian Research in Washington, D.C., this is Dan Ahm. Asia Insight is a podcast series from NBR. We interview top Asia experts to discuss key issues affecting the Indo-Pacific region so that you, our listeners, can better understand Asia and make informed choices. In this episode, I interview Dr. Sheila Smith to discuss Japan's perceptions and strategy in light of the evolving competition between the United States and China. She walks us through how Japan views the competition, the current state of Japan's relations with the United States and China, and how other countries in the region, such as Russia and North Korea, affect Japan's security calculus. Taken together, these dynamics give Japan three potential paths forward to choose from, as Sheila will elaborate. This conversation draws from Sheila's recent chapter, Japan's Interests in an Era of U.S.-China Strategic Competition. This chapter comes from NBR's 2020 volume of Strategic Asia, on the U.S.-China competition for global influence. Let me briefly introduce Sheila. Her full bio is linked in the show notes to this podcast. Dr. Sheila Smith is Senior Fellow for Japan Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. An expert on Japanese politics and foreign policy, Sheila researches, teaches, and advises on U.S.-Asia relations. She has authored several books on Japan. Among her service on boards and foundations, Sheila serves as Vice Chair of the U.S. Advisors the U.S.-Japan Conference on Cultural and Educational Interchange. She also teaches as an adjunct professor at Georgetown University. She came to CFR from the East-West Center in 2007 and has been a visiting researcher at two leading Japanese foreign and security policy think tanks. Now, without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Asia Insight. Sheila, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. We're so glad to have you here. And we're thrilled to have you because so you're the author of a chapter in our recent Strategic Asia volume uh, a, titled Japan's Interest in Era of U.S.-China Strategic Competition. Um, but before we do a deep dive into your chapter, I want to first ask, how did you get interested in U.S.-Japan relations? Well, well, there's a long version, but let me give you the short version. The short version is I was a Ph.D. student at Columbia University. And so we had spent a lot of time in IR theory theorizing about the political economy of Japan, Japan's rise as an economic superpower and its influence. But we didn't do an awful lot uh, research-wise on Japan's security policymaking. And so I did my dissertation on that tension between Article 9 of Japan's post-war constitution and the various tugging and pulling that emanates from Washington in terms of the Cold War alliance. So... That was the beginning. Well, it seems you had a great premonition because security as well as all the economic and political issues are what are really important in the U.S.-Japan relations today. And so, so you know, fast forward 2020, we recognize that the U.S. And, the China and China are in a strategic competition. So how do Japan's leaders perceive what's going on between the two countries? Do they see it as a favorable or disfavorable environment? Well, I think the, the, the easy and fast answer, especially here in Washington, is that Tokyo welcomes the fact that the United States has finally recognized the challenges, the myriad challenges that are emanating from this rise in China. I wrote a book in 2015 called Intimate Rivals, which was really 
taking a deep dive into Japanese domestic politics and looking at the ways in which various Japanese interests were being affected by China's increasing first economic influence and then its more recent military influence on Japan. So I think Japan, I think many Japanese leaders have felt for some time that we didn't quite appreciate um, how dearly this is costing Japan and how much, how many trade-offs this is forcing on Japanese, not only consumers, but other military and others as well who were looking at this China looming large and wondering if their government was really well equipped to deal with it. So the alliance comes in really in, uh, as a major factor for Tokyo when thinking about how to contend with China and having the United States be a little bit more on the same page with them uh, helps. So you mentioned the, um, some of the domestic factors that are helping to shape Japan's policies. Are there others? Are there, um, what, are the, what is general public perception about U.S. and China? So the domestic interests have long, I mean, since the normalization in 1978, the business community in Japan, of course, the various private economic actors have really wanted a strong Japan-China engagement. So you always have the business leadership and especially the trading companies and the manufacturers. But today, small and medium-sized businesses are invested in China. You have a, a whole of service industries, et cetera. So there is a strong commercial set of ties that affect the, the, the Japanese uh, domestic audience. Um, the other, though, is um, there has been on the right in Japan a little bit more of a hesitancy about communist China, about the communist system in China, mainland China. And so you see that from, again, from the normalization talks in the late 70s on forward, there are some in the LDP who are much more concerned about the state of the internal organization of power in China and how that's exercised. Uh, you have dem democracy, not rights advocates, but those interested in democratic governance and others are somewhat leery about some of the policies, of course, in China. Uh, you have a small but fairly vocal uh, set of politicians and other actors in Japan who are very supportive of Taiwan and, of course, see the, that juxtaposition or the ups and downs in the Taipei-Beijing relationship as something that Japan should speak out about. And then by extension, you've had activists with the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. More recently, you've even had the foreign minister in the Abe cabinet speak out about the Hong Kong protests and China's behavior there. So you've got an array of actors. Um, since the Senkaku, the Senkaku or Diaoyu as the Chinese referred to the islands in the East China Sea, since that confrontation, you've also had public opinion wavering quite strongly on the question of a Chinese threat to Japan, a more adventuresome military threat that might affect their security. But public opinion has been souring on the government in Beijing for over a decade, decade and a half now. Given all these factors that you've identified, mm -hmm. it makes for a really interesting Petri dish of yes. different <laughs> um, forces pushing and pulling. Right. And so then when it comes out from um, to a strategy, mm -hmm. uh, you've identified a three-part strategy in terms of how Japan deals with China, with the U.S., and the region. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about sure. that strategy? I think, you know, at, the, at its nadir, the tensions between Japan and China over the island dispute uh, was 2012, 2013, 2014. And here, the, you know, you could, you could easily say there were mistakes made on both sides, but clearly um, the Chinese leadership reacted very strongly. Uh, first in 2010 to the Chinese fishing trawler captain who somewhat inebriated <laughs> decided he was going to ram some Coast Guard ships that tried to push him away from the islands. Um, that he was then detained, arrested, and that created a huge Chinese government reaction. Um, two years later, there was some effort to kind of mitigate the risk and, you know, the two governments tried to dampen things down a little bit in both inside both of their countries, but then in 2012, 
um, the Japanese government decided they were going to purchase these islands because they'd been privately owned. Uh, they were somewhat worried that there would be some Chinese company somewhere that might buy them from the owner, and so there's a little bit of concern on that. Mm. So, so they purchased them, and the Chinese government then really responded and then began to send Chinese Coast Guard government vessels out to patrol the islands in an assertion of sovereignty. So that's the kind of nadir. Um, Remember that Prime, Prime Minister Abe comes into office after this. So he was reelected, comes back for his second term in mm. office in 2012. So the conservatives come back in power in Japan in the midst of this huge tension. Um, and it's not until November of 2014 that Abe finally meets Xi Jinping, President Xi. Uh, the Chinese side is, I think, and you'll need a China expert to, to talk more eloquently about this, but obviously remember the Chinese side is also going through the consolidation of Xi's power, that big transition mm. in China. Is, hi- is happening simultaneously. So you've got domestic factors on both sides here. Um, and since the Abe-Shi meeting in, the, in late 2014, though, you've had a gradually, slowly recalibrating the, you know, the mechanics of government. You know, they, for a while, there was no go. There was no governmental negotiations. Not, you know, what we think of as track 1.5 dialogues were not happening. You know, they were pretty expansive between Japan and China, and they still are. Um, but there was a ma- massive shutdown in the relationship. And um, that's when the United States he- kept hearing an awful lot from each side about the causes of the tensions and the potential solutions. But since then, Abe and Xi have managed to get themselves a little bit back on a steadier diplomatic track. And in fact, Abe last year went to China. Xi Jinping was due to arrive in Japan in April to see the cherry blossoms, he said, euphemistically. But there was a state meeting scheduled. But with the coronavirus, that's been postponed till later this year. Uh, so I think we're back in a formal mm. get, getting the, the, the two, what is the strategic outlook for the partnership going forward? That's where we are in the relationship. So there's a certain amount of recovery that's happened. So um, it seems while the mm. political relationship has ebbed and flowed, the mm. economic relationship continues to stay strong. So it ebbed and flowed at the moment of crisis. And again, this is a period that I wrote about in Intimate Rivals. But at the moment of crisis, um, Chinese consumers were not, you know, Japanese consumers were not buying Chinese goods and Chinese consumers were bashing Japanese cars. And there was a lot of economic fallout from that, the crisis. But it is sort of certainly back. Um, it may not be back in the same way, though. And I think that's the important thing to remember about the Japan-China relationship is Japan is deeply invested in China. But the, the, the strength or the dependency has, the characteristic of that dependency has changed. It, again, go back to 78 in the Normalization Treaty. Japan was a massive source of economic assistance, both government ODA as well as private investment. And some Japanese companies lost all kinds of money in the fits and start that we think of as China's market reforms. But there are other, China has other uh, players or dancers on its dance card, so to speak. I mean, we are there, the Europeans are there. Uh, lots of investment from other parts of the globe. So Japan is still critical, but not as dominant in terms of economic uh, uh, contributions to Chinese um, growth. Today, um, about 5% of the Japanese economic growth is somewhere between 5 and 15% is said to be dependent on China, on the China market. So you've got more dependence now on the Japanese side on China than you had in, in in the past. So the nature of the interdependence is shifted. They're both deeply interdependent on each other. The second piece, of course, is the alliance with us, right? Mm. And um, as your listeners will know well, we have a bilateral security treaty with Japan. Uh, we have Article 5 protections in which the United States is committed to the defense of Japan or deterrence uh, against aggression. 
Uh, the Japanese offer the United States military bases on Japanese territory. In fact, our only our only uh, aircraft carrier outside the United States is homeported in Yokosuka, Japan. We've got about 50,000, I think, men and women in uniform serving in Japan today. So a strong mill-mill relationship between the two countries. Um, really important for our Pacific fleet to be able to operate and project power, those bases in Japan, as well as the cooperation with the Japanese military. Very, very important for deterrence in the Korean Peninsula. Very, very important, of course, for whatever could happen in the South China Sea and beyond. Um, so the military relationship is never in doubt, um, but it is it is uh, our trade relationship that has had its ups and downs, right? As we can go back to the 80s and the challenge of Japanese exports to the U.S. market. So we've had our tensions over trade. Those were largely uh, put behind us, I think, yeah, by the end of the 1990s. Um, but I think what, I w what was really impressive to me is to watch the TPP negotiations, the Trans-Pacific Partnership moment. Um, when Abe came back into power, his first visit to Washington in February 2013 was when he basically indicated to President Obama that he was willing to, to move forward with Japan, uh, joining the TPP. And that was the first formal uh, beginning of the, the bilateral partnership to navigate that process. And there you didn't see the Japanese and Americans fighting with each other. You really saw us looking forward together in the region. And I think it was a very effective partnership in terms of regional trade relationships, unfortunately. <laughs> in, my, in my mind, anyway, unfortunately, we backed away from that. But uh, Japan continued to move forward and then mm. concluded the CPTPP. But um, I think it goes without saying that uh, the Japanese government, especially the Abe cabinet, would be very happy to have the United States come back to the CPP, CPTPP. So um, we have had our trade issues. Uh, we've resolved them in the current administration, as President Trump seems to be very focused on the deficit. There's been some significant compromises made and a bilateral agreement, at least a, a, a beginning of a bilateral agreement concluded. Um, the last piece is the region. And this is where I think you see today, not only in trade, but also uh, more broadly, I think you see the slight gap between Tokyo and Washington on how to approach regional relationships, how to lead in the region. Uh, Japan is very, again, the Abe cabinet has been very articulate and very forward-leaning on their Indo-Pacific concept, the language which has re readily been adopted here in Washington and, and uh, not necessarily improved upon, but at least uh, embellished somewhat. So I think the Trump administration has embraced, uh, at least in in theory, this idea of working with other partners across the Indo-Pacific. Japan still brings more resources, especially economic uh, infrastructure investment, uh, very interested in building partnerships all the way across to the east coast of Africa, um, whereas we're still kind of inching our way beyond Australia. <laughs> the president was just recently in India, though, so that helps a lot to have the president visit India, I think, helps to put some, some real heft into that idea of an Indo-Pacific vision for the United States. But I, I think that you know more is better um, as far as Tokyo is concerned, more American engagement, more uh, showing up at meetings, of course, but actually bringing some resources to the table to contend with China's BRI, I think would be very welcome. The strategic piece on the region for Japan, though, I think is something we don't often think about as, as much here. And that is, I think that Abe and his government have seen the Indo-Pacific concept not just as a new name for regionalism, but also for the opportunity to build much better and much more intimate, closer partnerships 
with other players in the region. And, you know, Japan has always kind of done that economically, in, you know, ODA, commercial uh, ties, et cetera. But I think today you're seeing their military play a much more significant and forthright role in the execution of that vision as well. So there's a bit of, in the, in the paper I say, that's where Japan's hedge is, you know, in terms mm. of the rise of China or worry about us, what they're doing to make sure that they're well positioned should things get too tough is that they're building a coalition or a network of other regional players that could help as ballast, maybe, if one, one or the other, China or the United States, uh, gets a little bit too hard to handle. It seems as they're, they're pulsing that network as well, it seems they're also taking um, more of a leadership role uh, in defining what that means and um, uh, promoting a free and Indo-Pacific region. Can you speak a little bit to their sure. leadership Sure. I think you know what's been interesting for me, who's somebody who's watched Japanese foreign policy over time, is... You had in the Oslo cabinet, you had this articulation of a kind of democracy-led coalition that Japan was trying to, to create. Um, it, 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 it was a little uneasy, it created a little unease in the region because it looked a little bit, you know, there's a sort of echoes of pre-war kind of rhetoric. And I don't think that was necessarily the intention, but I think it wasn't as refined as what you're seeing today. Mm-hmm. Um, what you do see today is a free, open, and inclusive Right, Indo-Pacific is the language. The free and the open and the inclusive, of course, refer to obviously freedom of navigation or free open seas, uh, open trade, right? Open regionalism, not something that's going to shut out the United States or shut out other players. Uh, and so you watch Japan invite the European countries, for example, France and, and the UK and, and others to come and play in the Indo-Pacific uh, theater, both militarily as well as in, in terms of trade and, and investment. Um, the in, the inclusive is, of course, the they're trying to still keep that door open to Beijing to say this is not containment. Uh, and when Abe, Prime Minister Abe, went to China last year, um, you actually saw a real emphasis on this inclusive piece of the puzzle. And they said this is Indo-Pacific vision could include China. Of course, will include China, right? It's not anti-China. It's just a larger framework within which the Chinese should be thinking of of participating. And I think, so you see a little tension between FOIP, that's the Japanese acronym, it's a terrible acronym, <laughs> the free and open Indo-Pacific, I just say the whole thing just because I can't get FOIP off my lips very easily, but anyway. The it sounds too much like a FOIA request. Yeah, I know, yeah. it doesn't sound, in Washington it does, it sounds exactly like that, but so the free and open Indo-Pacific is in some ways a bit of a counterbalance in terms of the BRI, the, the Bridge and Road Initiative for the Chinese. Not that they have to be mutually exclusive, and that was the that's the emphasis that Abe took to Beijing. We can, i.e., Japan and China can find common ground here. We all agree that Asia in Asian infrastructure requires 1.4 trillion, is it dollars worth of investment, right? Significant investment if we're going to all grow. We can all do it. Um, we can find pockets of compromise where we can cooperate, and let's build on those pockets of compromise. The reality is, it's like the AIIB. Um, the Japanese want to see the Chinese develop a far more market-oriented um, set of economic behaviors, if you will, right? Whether it's lending through the AIIB or it's um, you know infrastructure assistance through BRI, they want it to be at the standards already right in in play in Asia. So high quality, 
uh, open bidding, all the kinds of basic uh, standards that have been in place in the world economy for, for both development and financial assistance, right? So that's where there's a little bit of a, there's personal ties, like the director of the AI, the governor of the AIB knew the governor of the ADB for decades. They, you know, they knew each other, respected each other. They found a way to work, make it work. Um, the BRI, I think similarly, there's projects, and I think in Thailand we, there were some specific projects that they decided to say, okay, well, we can co cooperate here on this infrastructure project because it's the same standards on both sides. So there's a sense that, okay, if we can manage to navigate that piece, maybe there are lots of ways in which you could find collaboration across the region. So I think it's a, it's worth a shot. It doesn't take away from the Japanese sense of concern about China's military power, um, but it is one way of trying to manage the competition in a way that's more conducive to Japanese interests and, as you said, to demonstrate Japan actually can lead on some of these issues in the region. Mm. So it seems like there are uh, big stakes both for the United States and Japan in this ongoing competition. You mentioned that it, um, we recently included at least the first phase of a U.S.-Japan trade deal. Mm -hmm. Is it done? What else is on the table to negotiate? Yeah, no, it's not done. So, so I'm not sure anybody is 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 chomping at the bit to start negotiating again, <laughs> either in Washington or Tokyo. I think the political need for that bilateral, right? Both the president's political need uh, and Mr. Abe's need to manage, you know, the the threat of Section 232 tariffs on autos, right? Um, there were real strong political reasons why both of those leaders wanted to get that done. In, in There's two pieces to it. One was the agricultural uh, access for the United States. The second was the digital uh, trade piece. Um, the agricultural part was really to allow uh, the United States to get access to the compromises that were made in TPP. So without being in TPP, Japan offered a similar level of market access in agriculture. Uh, as you know, the, the Japan, I'm sorry, the US PRC uh, tariffs were exacting a fairly high price on our farmers. So by the time you got to September of last year and the final stage of negotiations with Japan, some of the spillover from the tensions in the, in the US PRC uh, trade talks were, were also affecting the purchase of corn feed that the Japanese didn't really need, things like that. There was some relief to farmers built in, uh, and Mr. Abe went ahead with that. A little controversial in Japan. He got a little pushback there. Um, the digital agreement is straightforward, and it's, you know, forward-looking. Uh, what do we do about digital trade and how do we regulate it, which is, you know, is a topic of conversation these days among a lot of the advanced industrial economies. So those two components... I think uh, with the large, you know, frosting of political <laughs> benefit to both leaders, um, that that took place. I think there's things like dispute resolution um, mechanisms and settlement dispute um, rules are still out there, of course, um, and there are other issues out there as well. But for now, I don't see any big push to go back to the table for either of them. Um, the thing that is looming large in the bilateral relationship is not trade uh, at the moment, anyway, and that's the, but it's what we call host nation support. Uh, the United States and South Korea are going through talks or have been going through talks for the last year or so, talks that broke down, talks that really haven't been resolved, um, talks that are kind of have reached a kind of shocking kind of era of leverage here. So our Secretary of Defense on the eve, a week or two ago, on the eve of the Korean Minister of Defense arrival 
printed on a Sunday night, printed out an advisory. And he basically said, if we don't get a comprehensive agreement on the, this issue, we're going to furlough South Korean workers off of American bases. So there's real hard leverage being used, costly leverage being used. Uh, and then, then South Korea's coronavirus crisis blew up, you know, badly. We all watched it, right? And so this soul is in the midst of this hor- horrific crisis, mm-hmm. and they implemented the furlough. They announced a furlough for South Korean workers on U.S. bases. So uh, it's sad to watch because there's a there's a the ask is very high of South Korea. So they want it to go from one billion to five billion overnight, right? Huge ask, right? Mm-hmm. The second is that the, the the leverage being brought to bear right on this is really souring public perceptions of the United States and South Korea, mm-hmm. and so Japan, of course, is watching all this very very carefully, um, and I think it's going to be. I think there's a, a little bit of dread that if we, for example, had a second Trump administration, that they will then be subjected to the same kind of pressure and. You know, coercive leverage to try to get the, the the amount of money that Japan pays to be higher. Now, there's nothing wrong with burden sharing, right? We've had burden sharing negotiations with our allies since Senator Mansfield led the Senate. In fact, imposed the Senate, the, the Mansfield Amendment on our defense bill, right? Which is we will, this is the 60s, right? We will require our allies to shoulder more of their responsibility for their defenses. And, and so the 60s was Europe and NATO. Uh, we've had talks all the way through. Uh, on how to get NATO countries to do more for their own defenses. And so um, this is not new. Japan became a focal point, of course, when we had huge trade tensions in the 80s. And Japan was the you know economic superpower, the global economic superpower. Um, but the reality is here, it's not that we you, the burden sharing is not legitimate. Of course it's legitimate, right? Uh, it's not that our allies should pay more and that we should find ways for our allies to offset the cost of, uh, to us of strategic protection. But at the end of the day, you want our alliances to continue to be strong and strongly supported by the Japanese people, South Korean people, Europeans, right? Um, because if they're not, they're no good. doesn't matter what it says in paper, right? If the public doesn't accept that that's a, that's a bargain that they're willing to, to make, uh, then you've soured an alliance not just for the basic treaty obligations, but you've soured an alliance for cooperation, let's say, in in uh, patrolling right, the Strait of Hormuz, which the Japanese are doing independent of the coalition that the uh, then National Security Advisor Bolton was trying to, to push forward. So allies always have their own interests. They have their own domestic politics. And we, we have to navigate this burden-sharing question in a way that helps us strategically strengthen our ability to defend and deter and to project power, but not to undermine the basic foundations of public support for the alliance. And that's going to be tricky if it gets more harsh, I think. And we definitely don't want to undermine the relationship. Um, and we're probably nowhere near what I'm about to ask, but is there a point at which Japan says maybe it's not worth it within the context of the U.S.-China competition, mm. with, with them receiving pressure both from China yeah. and the U.S., yeah. is there a point at which they start to change their strategic calculus? So I think there's 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 v- multiple variables in that question that we should probably address. But the the thing I think w- is important to remember is that both China and the United States are powerful countries that can exact high price or high risk for Japan, right? So 
one host nation support negotiation is not going to break the alliance. That's not that you know it's not that straightforward, but it can shake confidence, right? That the alliance is really for mutual benefit, right? Um, so there's a, that's a more narrow rendering of your question, but the the bigger question is if we are headed, and you know we we've all recognized though everybody who contributed to this volume that we are in an era of U.S. China strategic competition. If it's benign competition, competition can be benign or it can be really, you know, no holds barred, right? Um, so if we're in the rel- relatively benign variant of it, then our allies are, I think, America's strategic, best strategic asset, honestly, especially in Asia. Um, so we have to think about that asset and how to maintain it, right, in a way that doesn't necessarily mean that Japan gets to do whatever it wants, um, but it, that, you know, that we understand that that asset is in, in and of itself something that helps us with our strategic competition with China. Um, the second piece, of course, is how much China wants to put into play. And this, again, could range everything from overt diplomacy towards Japan, encouraging it to move a little bit in a more accommodating direction with with Beijing, let's just say on Asian leadership. Um, You could see that kind of overture from from China. Some people think that she is attempting that now um, to take advantage of the Trump administration's kind of, uh, you know, more protectionist economic policies. And of course, if it becomes more difficult for the alliance to take advantage of that also. Uh, I don't think we're there yet, but you could see it. You could see an overt effort by the Chinese to sort of encourage our allies to be less aligned with us. And I, you could say that there's a little bit of that in play in South Korea. Maybe not well. I think the THAAD issue, the Chinese overplayed their hand, clearly. Um, so I'm not sure we're there yet either, but we've got to be cognizant of the possibility. And then there's us. Um, we, we are powerful, and Japan and South Korea rely on us for their, their security. Um, if we start to play hard and fast with that, uh, saying, you know, you have to do X, Y, and Z if you want us to protect you. You have to decouple your economy if you want us to protect you. If we start playing that kind of um, using our influence and their dependence on us for strategic protection in a way that overtly places them right in the middle, um, there is going to be a complicated calculus on the other side because I think the, the cost, at some point there will be a moment where the cost is too high, um, whether it's the economic cost if we ask for decoupling or it's the, um, I don't know what the wor- there's a good word for this other than the status you know, status cost of being manipulated by an external external regional power. Uh, you could think of all kinds of things, and that's where the domestic politics is getting is is a little is a complicating factor in it in the democracies, right? That are our allies. It matters to the South Korean people and the Japanese people how we are treating their prime minister. It matters to them how they see how we see the alliance, whether our values are what are um, at the base our common values as democracies, right, are at the base of our partnership, or if it's just a straightforward transaction, right? Uh, so I think, it, Matt, all these variables are important, but I think it's important to understand that our allies will see Chinese power and American power um, equally problematic if we start to use our power in a way that begins to look a little bit more coercive. We always talk about Chinese coercion, but we don't actually recognize that we have the potential also 
to raise the costs to Japan of their association with us. So it's, it's just wise to, to balance those things out. Japan is dependent on us and has willingly remained dependent on us strategically because it has served their interests to do so. I am not somebody who thinks Japan will change their mind in a snap and go nuclear. I think that would be a very complicated calculus. And as I said at the end of my most recent book, uh, it's not threat perception alone that will persuade the Japanese, and by that I mean the government and the Japanese people, to say, okay, fine, we need nuclear weapons if we're going to survive in a dangerous neighborhood. I don't think that's right. Um, but I think it's us. We are the variable that could begin to shift Japanese thinking away uh, and more towards, well, we'll have to think about other options. And those other options are many. They're not just a nuclear weapon, right? Mm. There are multiple. Yes, and I want to go to the options near the end. But okay. So I've realized that so we've um, dug into U.S. Uh, Japan relations mm. with China and mm-hmm. the U.S. Mm. Um, on the third piece, the one or the set of countries we haven't talked about yet right. are Russia and North Korea, yeah. uh, important security actors in the region. What's Japan's view when it comes to how to manage relations with Russia and North Korea? Well, let me start with North Korea because that's more straightforward, I mm. think, because of the, the proliferation issue. So. Japan has steadily and consistently, not just Mr. Abe, but you can go back to Koizumi, you can go back um, a bit. Um, Japan is, is a member of the MPT. It is a, strongly, uh, is a strong advocate globally for nuclear nonproliferation, right? So um, since the North Koreans began to, to move away from participating in MPT uh, and then have demonstrated their missile capability, Japan has been very focused on that and con- has condemned both missile um, proliferation as well as nuclear. The problem is there, there was one moment there where Prime Minister Koizumi went to North Korea and met with Kim Jong-un. I'm sorry, Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-un's father. And they issued a, what's called the Pyongyang Declaration. And this was when Japanese citizens were returned home to Japan who had been abducted. But the Pyongyang Declaration was very much focused on missiles. And uh, Kim Jong-un's father basically said, we will halt, we'll put a moratorium on missiles. Uh, missile testing. And that's where at that point Washington and Tokyo saw the threat from North Korea quite differently. We were we were still looking at fissile mm-hmm. material, especially their capability of making a dirty bomb or of selling fissile material to somebody who would use a dirty bomb terrorist attack against the United States. Japan was very focused on the missile capability because as you know, Japan doesn't have its own strike capability, so it doesn't have its own ability to deter uh, missiles. Um, so the strategic piece of it was always front and center in Japanese calculus. And then the, we had some differences with Tokyo about where we were putting emphasis on nuclear and they were putting emphasis on, on missiles. Uh, today, um, you know, all the demonstrated capability of the North Koreans has been uh, seen with alarm in Tokyo, and it gradually has produced a very serious investment in ballistic missile defenses but also a fairly open political conversation about whether or not the time has come for Japan itself to develop a conventional strike, not nuclear, but conventional strike capability as a a retaliatory measure in case North Korea might miscalculate. You know, in 2017, when all the fire and fury rhetoric was going on and North Korea and the United States were at loggerheads, uh, all those missiles were aimed in the direction of Japan. And so the Japanese public was getting you know, civil defense alerts, <laughs> missiles were flying over top, that kind of stuff. So I think there's a fairly open understanding that North Korean proliferation has reduced Japanese security, and mm. Japan needs to adapt to that. Mm. Um, on Russia, 
more complicated, the territorial issue to the north, right? The Japanese referred to them as the Northern Territories, the Russians call them the Southern Kurils, but um, those islands, Japan feels, ought to have been returned, and there was negotiations in the 50s for that to happen that fell apart largely because we interceded and said don't 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 conclude that agreement with the Soviets right at the time so we'll need that later yeah <laughs> we uh, we are we are, we were not a helpful partner in that one but anyway um, the the Soviets and then okay, the Russians right have not been willing to return those islands I think Putin has President Putin has um, teased Prime Minister Abe <laughs> with we could go back to 1956 sure if you give us lots of money investment in the, and this is usually the trade off in these kinds of conversations Abe when he came back into office met a lot of a lot of times I can't tell you now how often they've met but it, in the initial two or three years of the Abe cabinet it was very frequent um, and Putin really did give Abe the 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 sense that they were getting close to some kind of compromise. Some of us were a little bit skeptical, but um, as of yet, there is no there is no peace treaty and there is no compromise. I think you've also begun to see the Russians act jointly with the Chinese in exercising their forces in and around Japan. So you know the Far Eastern fleet and the Far Eastern Russian military is far weaker than it was under the Soviet era, but nonetheless, uh, they continue to do, do multiple scrambles against Japan to the north and. To imagine a map, but you know Hokkaido and uh, the Soviet Far East is not very far away, and uh, Japanese Air Force pilots will tell you that they're very, very accustomed to scrambling against the Russians. You know exactly what's coming at you because they've been doing it since the Cold War, right? Um, but now you've got the Chinese in the southwestern corridor, and all both sides sending you know bombers around Japan, and so you've got a lot more activity: China, Russia to the north, China to the south, and now joint patrols through the Sea of Japan and even in the East China Sea, and at times entering into the contiguous waters of the Senkaku Islands. So, so for all of the potential promise of a, some kind of diplomatic breakthrough with Putin, uh, I think there's been a certain disappointment in Tokyo that the Russian peace is not being able, they haven't been able to move the needle a little bit on the Russian peace. If you're very strategically inclined, um, and Mr. Abe would probably see his initiative this way, which is to try to persuade the Russians not to cooperate quite so much with the Chinese, to offer them a second potential, not partner in the sense of ally, but to offer a slight incentive to maybe not cozy up quite so much to Beijing. I think that may have been part, part of the intent. I can't tell you if it's been any, if it had any success or not. So taking all these different factors into mind, what are Japan's options as it, if trends continue, it looks like U.S.-China competition is increasing? So I think the, the, the first impulse, and I think you can see this empirically already in the way Japan has behaved to the rise of China, and that is to draw closer to the United States and to encourage uh, far more conspicuous, both declaratory policy but also in deployments and exercises, um, conspicuous uh, U.S demonstration of uh, its strategic uh, obligation to Japan. That we've seen, we saw it after the Senkaku's Prime Minister, I'm sorry, President Obama went to Tokyo and openly said in Tokyo, after the Chinese had announced their ADIS, their air defense identification zone in 2014, when Obama basically said, 
you know, so there, so there would be no doubt about it that the Senkakus were under the administration of Japan and therefore subject to Article 5 protections. Um, President Trump, on August 1st visit to Washington, repeated that declaratory policy. We've operated extensively, not only to demonstrate to the Chinese, but to demonstrate to the North, Korea's as, the North Koreans as well. Uh, that we are amply able and willing to defend Japan should anybody threaten their security. So that 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 that's you know point number one, right? But the Japan, but Prime Minister Abe has also moved to shore up his Indo-Pacific collaboration, uh, including the military-to-military exchanges and exercises with India and the Malabar exercises with us, with the Philippines visits with submarines to the Philippines and then to Vietnam, right? So. And of course, the, the security uh, relationship between Japan and Australia is very, very close. Um, Japan is about to, or has already signed a status of forces visiting agreement to send some forces to train with the Australians. So you're seeing the military piece of the regional uh, approach by Japan intensify, and so that's the second. The third is, you know, trying to manage the diplomacy with Beijing. Now, I think all of, so soft, you know, not softening Japan's security st- posture but trying to find a middle ground, both in the region, but also in the bilateral relationship. And you can see that through economic investment and the, the traditional instruments by which the Chinese and Japanese soften their, their tensions, but also looking out towards the region to see if there's ways in which they can avoid head-on collision of interest, right, conflict of interest. But I think what you're, you're, option A is always the first and most necessary for Japan, right? Option B, which is the regionalism, is always similarly a strong piece. Sometimes it's more successful than others. Right now, Japan is being very forward-leaning and I think quite successful in its Indo-Pacific partnership building. And then the last is to find, not accommodation so much, is to find the sweet spot with China. And it's harder and harder as Chinese power grows and also harder and harder as Chinese ambitions seem to actually conflict with some of Japan's fundamental interests, right? All of these options may be in play. Going forward, as the competition intensifies, you'll see some of them recede and some of them strengthen. Um, I think, and again, this goes back to the book I just wrote about Japanese military power, option A will always be, first and foremost, first priority, until, uh, if and until, (laughs) the United States begins to ask too much for that strategic protection or decides it's too expensive itself that Americans say, okay, you know, time. Japan should, you know, go it alone. It can manage. We don't need, really need to do so much, right? So we could we could move away from Japan's security and the alliance. We could, we could shift the needle in either way, by either retreating too, too much or by demanding a high price for that, that relationship. We've talked about the free and Indo-Pacific mm. strategy, both from the U.S. and J- Japan's perspective. The one piece we haven't touched on yet is the shared values right. between Japan and the U.S. Is that a strategic asset? What what should both countries be thinking about when they think about that yeah. in term in, um, in contrast to China's authoritarian model? So the interesting thing at this particular moment of American politics is we this administration tends to articulate our interests less in the in the frame of our values, be it democratic values, human rights. Um, and, you know, or, you know, an open and stable international economy, right? I mean, there's all kinds of ways we have, we have talked about our values and our global values as well as our regional values. Um, and this administration tends not to use the values-based approach, right? 
It's implicit, if you, if you listen to Secretary of State Pompeo talk about Indo-Pacific, it's implicit in what he says. It was certainly stated in Vice President Pence's early China speech, but it's not integrated throughout our policy objectives, right? It's not like that becomes a high part, a high set of our priorities. Um, the interesting thing is it's flipped. Japan never used to be very comfortable. And again, we could go back a decade or more um, that advocating for human rights, for example, or advocating for the rule of law, or um, and now Japanese strategic doctrine is all full of right references to Japanese values for an open and inclusive Indo-Pacific, right, for the rule of law in Asia, and reference to the UN law of the sea, for example, and resol- in resolving territorial tensions. So you're seeing the Japanese government now bring forward front and center their commitment to certain values that are both globally shared, the shorthand is the liberal order, right? Um, but also institutionally manifest, right? Whether it's regional institutions or global institutions. Um, we are not, right? we've pulled back. The Obama administration very forward leaning that way, Trump administration not so much, right? And so what's gonna be interesting to watch is, I think that's where Japan's leadership is being, um, is getting a lot of traction in the region because they are willing to use the values language. And so is India, so is Australia, right? And so the, the we may be stepping back from the way we articulate our interests as being collective and shared, right, based on these shared values. And the other countries of the region may be stepping up. Now, is that sufficient? Not sure. And so what we watch is, at least rhetorically anyway, you have President Xi Jinping at Davos talking about an open trading order and anti-protectionism, right? So it's getting deployed now in a way that is critical of the United States by countries that we don't always associate with having similar values as our own. So I'm not sure I have an answer, but I think the, the, the way in which the values piece of strategy is being deployed it's much more conspicuously being deployed by our partners in Asia and at the very moment when we are stepping back from it. Last question. This is a surprise question um, in the sense that I just thought of it. It's a surprise. It's a surprise, surprise to, me. to you. It's a surprise <laughs> to me. But looking back, when you first started studying these issues, you were yeah. focused on the security side because the economic and political sides mm. were being well harvested. If you're talking to a, you know, graduate student interested in U.S.-Japan issues, yeah. where would be the next frontier wow. for those interested in, in the <laughs> relationship? Well, one other thing, well, I should, I, this sounds very selfish when I start to say it this way, but it'll, it'll make sense when I bring it around to the students in just a second. So I teach two courses at Georgetown. One is a new course, which I'm really enjoying, and I hope my students are too, but it's called Asia's Nationalisms. So it's a broad sweep of 20th century Asia and the when and how nationalism comes to the fore and in what conditions and how that shapes, like 20th century Asian experience shapes their ideas about national identity and nationalism. So that's a fun one. And as you can see, the other one's on Japanese domestic politics, which I have always taught and I enjoy very, very much. But um, where my own research is going is a little bit more in this into this long view, not the kind of tit-for-tat policy of the moment, although it's not irrelevant because I think what I'm trying to understand, and this is where my next book project is is just beginning, but we often talk about this changing strategic balance in Asia, right? The geopolitics of today's Asia, and we largely are thinking about the change in the balance of power, material power, rise of China, right? 
decline of the United States or withdrawal of the United States. We're doing the old-fashioned IR, you know, kind of material power balancing act. But what's always, what's been conspicuous to me for some time is the underpinnings of the normative or legitimacy side of the post-war order in Asia, U.S.-led post-war order in Asia, to to be clear, uh, is the post-war settlement, the terms of the post-war settlement. And the post-war settlement in Asia, of course, was all about Japan. Post-war settlement in Europe was all about Germany. Uh, we negotiated the San Francisco Peace Treaty based on the premise that a punitive peace would not be a lasting peace. And that was the kind of global you know, mindset after World, the Versailles Treaty failed, right, in the interwar period to prevent war a second time. And I think what's interesting is we're three or three or coming up on four. If I count my son, he's a 20-year-old. So <laughs> coming up on four generations, right, beyond the end of the war. And there are all kinds of tugs and pulls on that normative foundation, mm. right? Mm. Part of it is strategic power, mm. right? Part of it's the rise of China, right? Um, part of it is what we see going on with Japan and South Korea. Part of it is what we see in the emergence of a Chinese public, right? that is critical of its government for compromising on Japan, right? So you see the kind of challenges to the normative or to the legitimacy of the post-war settlement in ways that are deeply coming from the domestic side of things. Um, And there are different sorts of pressures. It's not one uniform sort of pressure, but it all kind of, for me, revolves around this notion of national identity, right? And so it's, for me, I think there's a huge research agenda especially across the Asia-Pacific, and especially where we've got people like Benedict Anderson writing about Indonesia, right? We've got very eclectic thinking about this big word, nationalism, right? Um, But we don't have a lot of really good knitting together of strategic change or strategic shift and the domestic response to that strategic shift. We don't have to use the the nationalism word because it's not all about nationalism. Uh, but that's a shorthand we use for I think what most of us are feeling is that there's some very interesting currents here, and I'm worrisome on the one hand, <laughs> um, but I don't not sure we completely understand what those currents are separate from the material, who's bigger and who's got more money, kind of thing that we think about in balance of power theory. It's a fascinating question and a fascinating research topic. When should we expect the book? Oh, a couple years. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a little time. <laughs> you don't need any extra pressure to write a book. If you're interested in checking out what Japan's doing now in the next five to ten years, check out Sheila Smith's Japan's Interests in an Era of U.S. Strategic Competition in the Latest Strategic Asia. A couple years down the line, we'll look for that fantastic book on uh, Asia's nationalism. Thanks so much for coming to the show. My pleasure. It's always a pleasure to work with you. Thanks so much. This episode was made possible through the generous support of the United States Japan Foundation. This podcast was produced by Simone McGinnis. Theme music is by Laura Schwartz of Bellwether Bayou. Asia Insight podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.